We read our passage earlier, and I'm just going to kind of give you a, uh, a synopsis of the narrative here. Paul has been ministering in Thessalonica and then in Berea. You'll remember those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word readily and searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's the standard that, to which we aspire as Christians, that we search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. I don't ask you to take my word for it, friend. I want you to take your Bible and see what God has to say about anything and everything. But, but now these, these Jews especially who have opposed Paul, they've been following him. They gave him problems at Thessalonica. They followed him to Berea. And now the disciples that are there, they, these Christians, they say, Paul, you got to get out of here. And so they put Paul on a boat and head him over to Athens. Now Silas and Timothy are going to join him later. But Paul finds himself alone in this marked city. And while he waits, he takes a stroll around Athens, this city that was once the religious, philosophical, and educational center of the world. It is now beginning its decline. It was once the home of such luminaries as Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and Archimedes and everybody's favorite geography figure in school, Pythagoras. The Pythagorean theorem is his fault, young people. This city has begun its decline. What was once really the center of the world is starting to to wane a bit, but still impressive. The impressive edifices of the past, the Acropolis, the Agora, the Parthenon, they still remain. But what most garners Paul's attention are the innumerable idols, the shrines to false gods of every shape and size and disposition. The ancient writer Petronius said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. In fact, they estimate that for every adult citizen of the city of Athens, there were three false gods. That idolatry outnumbered humanity three to one. Now that sounds unthinkable, but I wonder if we're not in that shape in America. When our King James says that this idolatry stirred Paul's spirit in verse number 16, what it means was that Paul was moved to the point of anger. And we're going to talk about this, Lord willing, a little bit more tonight, but I have to ask the question, when's the last time the wiles and the actions of the devil in this world moved us to righteous anger? When's the last time the things of the devil bothered us at all? Paul is moved to anger. He's not angry at the Athenians. He's not angry at the people. He's angry at what's happening. He's angry at what the devil is doing. He's angry at how the world is is ruling. He's angry at how the flesh is winning. He's angry. He's stirred. And so what does he do? He begins a reasoned debate with all who will hear, be they religious Gentiles, pious Jews, or anybody else who will listen. By the way, there's something to be taken from that too. Our emotion, our stirrings matter little if they don't stir us to do something. 
And so he begins a reasoned debate. That's what that word disputed means. It doesn't just mean this random argument. It's a debate. He's trying to reason with folks concerning the things of God. These interactions catch the attention of the town elite, and Paul finds himself on Mars Hill, testifying in an informal hearing regarding his teaching. (laughs) Now, he isn't in an informal hearing. I don't believe he's in any real danger at this point, but it was the same group that sometime before condemned Socrates to death. So, you know, this is not without some import. These were the uh, Supreme Court of Athens, and Rome pretty much left them alone to rule as they saw fit. He addressed the spectrum. Well, let me back up. He's talking to them, and his response to them is an absolute master class in apologetics and gospel proclamation. He's addressed the spectrum of religious thought on the hill, the feeling-based hedonism of the Epicureans, and the reason-based arrogance of the Stoics. And now he points them all to the altar that has been marked to the unknown God. And he proceeds to introduce them to him. He declares this God to be their creator, their savior, and their eventual judge. Paul weaves the writings of their own poets and bards into his sermon, forcing them to acknowledge how very reasonable his claims are. But it is the death and resurrection of Christ that proves to be the sticking point for most. See, they're okay with new thinking. They're okay with new ideas. Let's put them all in the hopper and mix them up, and we'll, get, we'll eventually hit the right. But when he starts talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where they get hung up. That's where the Jews got hung up, and that's where most people get hung up. Such an absurd absurd impossibility. It just can't be true. People don't come back from the dead. And yet, thankfully, some believed. Now what we're most interested in this morning is verse number 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. Now, that doesn't mean that God was okay with it. It means that in his long-suffering mercy, he held back his hand of judgment. At the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. A word you don't hear much in churches anymore. People are scared to death of it for a number of reasons. I think the biggest reason people are scared of it is they don't know how to define it. And because we don't know how to define it, we just skip over it at our own peril. It's so needed. Paul makes it clear that the only hope for these Athenians, or anyone else for that matter, is that they repent and turn to the one true only God, Jehovah, Jesus Christ. He who renders every other altar surrounding Mars Hill to be useless and vain. He does not call them 
to rethink their sins. He does not call them to feel remorse about their sins. Should that happen? Yes. If we're living in sin, should we rethink it? Yes. Should we have remorse over it? Yes. All of that leads to repentance, but that's not what he calls them to do. He calls that, that's, that's assumed. That, that just goes without saying. But oh no. He calls them to repent of their sins. What does he mean? It means to see our sins for what they are. Our sins and the sins of these Athenians and the strangers that were there were an offense to the thrice holy God of the universe. Listen, sin's a bad idea and it takes you down the wrong road and it's not good for you and it's not good for your family and it's not good for your community. But more than anything else, Athens, your sin has offended God. He calls on them to see these sins for what they are and to recognize the ultimate destination should they continue on their present course. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and failed to repent, your ultimate destination is a very real place called hell, Athenians. And if there's some among you that have been introduced to the Savior and you have trusted Christ, but you've embraced these sins again, your destination is the chastening hand of God. And whatever life he gives you left will be full of regret and hurt and sorrow. To repent is to see sins for what they are and to recognize ultimate destinations and to beg forgiveness of the Creator. And with His help, to turn from these actions and attitudes, seeking rather to live a life that is honoring to the once unknown but now clearly seen God of the universe. God has so blessed me and allowed me to be the preacher for this hour. But this message is not mine. It is not I that call upon my hearers to repent. It is the God of this Bible who calls upon all to repent. Some of us need to repent unto salvation. In a crowd this size, yes, even in with County, Virginia, there is a high likelihood that somebody in this room and certainly somebody watching online is in need of the Savior. And it's time to repent. There are Christians, and I have been that Christian and will be that Christian again, that have allowed things into our lives that shouldn't be there. And it is time to repent. If we are going to see revival, revival does not come without repentance. Blessing does not come without repentance. I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. I'm not talking about wallowing in your own efforts. I'm saying realizing this sin is a no-go. It's going to lead in all the wrong places. I've offended my holy God. Oh God, with your help, I want to turn away from them. And I want to live a life that's pleasing to you.
Some of us need to repent unto salvation. Others need to repent unto continued sanctification. So may God help us as we discover the transcendence of God's call to repentance. The transcendence of God's call to repentance. Father, I'm so thankful and privileged to be back at this again. I don't deserve it. I am keenly aware of that. But you've given me this opportunity. I'm grateful. And now, Lord, I ask that you would use me in whatever way you see fit, but may it be clear that this is not an Andy message. This is a Bible message. This is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God calling us to a place of repentance. I failed you. And as best I know, I'm right with you, Lord. But if there's something in my life over which I need to repent, I'll do so. I'll need your continued help, Lord. I'm not 100%. I never was. I never will be. I need you. And I ask that you'd help us today. And may Jesus be lifted up in our time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Repentance. Number one, repentance transcends convenience. It transcends convenience. I want you to look at verse number 30. Paul is speaking and he says, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But what? But what? Now. Now. When does God call upon man to repent? Now. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to know that now in the Greek means now. Immediately. Without delay. Post haste. Forthwith. Anon. Now. Do you remember when Paul in Acts chapter 24 was before Felix? And it says in verse 45, and as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season. I'll call for thee. What's going on? Felix is under conviction. Felix knows what Paul is saying is true. Felix is is coming face to face with the need of repentance in his life. And yet he says, this is not a convenient time for me. Because if I go through with this, there's some things in my life that are going to have to change. There's some things that I'm going to have to do away with. There's some things that I'm going to have to implement. I'm going to have to answer for some things. And it's just not convenient. And how many of us, saved or lost, have been confronted with the truth and we put it off because the time...
timing just isn't right. I'm too young and want to have some fun. I'm too old and can't change. I'm just not ready. God says now is the time. It transcends our convenience. God is not concerned with what we deem to be convenient and appropriate for, the, for the, the flow of our lives. God doesn't say when you feel like it, when you feel up to it, when you think maybe it's the right time. God, the sovereign God of the universe says, now I command you to repent. And how dare we try to put God on our timetable. Welcome back, preacher. I'm sorry y'all are dealing with a month's worth of pent-up. You see, when you talk to somebody about the things of the Lord, many will recognize the need for change. I've sat across from so many people, yeah, I know, that's right, that's right, yeah. But it doesn't go anywhere. Some even assent to specific things in their life that need to change, but the mantra comes, not yet. I got to pray about it. Let me tell you something. When it comes to getting right with God, there's nothing to pray about, friend. I got to think on this thing. Then you do so at your peril. You put God off. There comes a point that God says, I'm going to sit around here and wait on you. I thank God for his long-suffering mercy, but there comes a point that the Holy Spirit says, okay. You crossed a line. That line may be chastening. That line could be worse. We've told you before, the devil is a master deceiver. But his greatest lie is not there is no God. His greatest lie is not that Jesus isn't the Son of God. His greatest lie is not give up church and give up your religion. No, he doesn't mind any of that. His greatest lie is, yeah, you need to do something, but you've got time. There's plenty of time. Oh, young person, sow your wild oats. Eventually, eventually. I mean, look at the preacher. Preacher, you know he had a time where he was away from the Lord, and he got his act together. First of all, I didn't get anything together. God got it together. And I carry the scars of a misspent youth. And if I could go back and change some things, you better know I would. But I'm the exception. I'm not the rule. For me and my buddy that are stories of God's grace, we could give you a list of 10 people that we went to school with that aren't. And have never recovered. We find all kinds of reasons why it's not time yet. But I want you to know that God's call to repentance transcends your convenience. You know what else? It transcends your class. But now commandeth all men. Paul's speaking to these Athenians and those strangers that have gathered. He's not dealing with the dregs of society. Let's be honest. Go to Walmart. Do you see different classes of people? I'm not being unkind, but I'm saying it is evident that you see different folks that have different ideas of where they are in society. Y'all mind if I sit down for a minute? Thanks. You've got some people 
that would not dare leave the house except that they are presentable. Whether that's makeup, certain type of clothing, hair's just right, everything, whatever. And then you got some folks should not have left the house. <laughs> and if you're going to wear your pajamas to Walmart, at least wash them every once in a while. And we don't live in a class society. We don't have nobility and all of that. We're not feudalists. But honestly, there are people that are rich. There are people that are poor. There are people that are snooty. And there are people that are backwoods and everything in between. And it takes all kinds. It takes all kinds in a nation. It takes all kinds in a church. And I've learned the hard way it takes all kinds in a family too. You look at the Davises. Boy, there's a wide swath of class warfare on the Davis side of the family. Now, the white side, you know, not so much. They're all horrible. No, I'm kidding. They're not. They're not. I'm just kidding. They're wonderful people. I don't know where you think you sit this morning, if you're a nobility or if you're whatever's not nobility in America. I don't know where you think you sit. God doesn't care. God pays no attention to that. Unlike me, God doesn't care if you wear your pajamas to Walmart, I don't think. I don't know that I do either. I mean, when he calls people to repentance, he's talking to those that we would think is the upper crust, and he's talking to those that we would see as the dregs. He's not the Athenians. The Athenians, man, they were the they were the big shots. These were the people that everybody thought was wise and accomplished, people of authority and renown. In fact, in verse twenty-two, he even references their religious stature. It's interesting. You you understand that that words used in in, in sixteen eleven don't necessarily mean the same thing they do now. When he says, "I perceive you're, you're superstitious," he's not talking about you know crossing your fingers and not walking under a ladder and things like that. He's saying you're religious. He's not talking about baseball players. I was a baseball player. Baseball players are the most superstitious people you ever met in your life. We don't step on the line. If we're on a win streak, we don't change our socks. Um, you don't talk to a pitcher that's, that's pitching a no-hitter. You don't say a word to him. You know, um, You do weird things to get out of a slump. Superstitious stuff, man. I was. Didn't help, but I was. He's not saying that. He's saying you're religious. He, he, is, he is giving them credit. You are seeking to know the deeper things of the spiritual realm. Good for you. But you're not hitting it right. Athenians, y'all are big shots. Y'all are the guys that everybody looks to for truth, and God doesn't care. <laughs> well, I'm glad the preacher's preaching this message because there's a lot of people in here that need it. Thankfully, I've been a card-carrying Baptist since day one, and God doesn't care. God doesn't care. Well, <laughs> You know, I'm the one that pays for everybody else in society to enjoy, but God doesn't care. 
wherever you find yourself in your class this morning, I want you to understand something. His call to repentance transcends all of that. It's bigger than all of that. You see, God's call to repentance transcends your convenience and my convenience. He doesn't care whether we think we're ready or not. He says to do it. It transcends our class. But you know what else? It transcends our culture. What's it say in verse 30? God now commandeth all men, what? Everywhere. Earlier, Paul has said that he made us all of one blood. Hard to get around that. I always get nervous when somebody, before they tell me something, they look around. Preacher. Some Muslims done moved in in my neighborhood. Arabs. Okay. Let's give them the gospel. Why? Because God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Oh, Lord. There goes the neighborhood. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Do I recognize that there are cultures and things culturally that we have to work out? I I know that. I grew up in the South, y'all. I get it. But if somebody's culture ever causes us to even a little bit tap on the brake into who we will and won't witness to, then God forgive us and we need to get right with God because God calls all men everywhere to repent. The gospel's for every color, for every creed, for every ethnicity, for every culture. I read a book years ago, and I've never, I've never shook it. He makes a statement, and he's 100% right. If your church is not percentage-wise the same makeup as your community, you're doing something wrong. So if your community is 30% African-American, there ought to be a few in your church. If your community is 10% Asian-American, have you reached any of them? Hmm? Oh, by the way, it can swing the other way too. Some people don't like white folk, whatever that is. What's a white person? Who knows? Because Paul said God made us all of one blood. And you know why that's important for a lot of reasons, but one blood means it only takes one blood to fix it too. I could care less what your ethnic blood is. doesn't matter. Do you have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life? That's the blood we need to worry about. Repentance transcends culture. It's not me that needs to repent. It's that group down the street. It's that group across town. It's not the Athenians, it's the Romans. It's not the Romans, it's the Jews. It's not the Jews, it's the Egyptians. Oh, but now, what do we find ourselves culturally, city or country? 
South versus North, male versus female, young versus old, rich versus poor, Anglo-Asian, African, Hispanic, American, or beyond that, indigenous versus immigrant, Republican versus Democrat, college-educated versus self-educated, on the rise versus down and out. Can I just tell you, no matter where you are in life, God doesn't care. He calls on you to repent. Because repentance transcends culture. You've not heard this in a while. I'm looking for the clicker I don't have. So what? Mm, preacher been out of the pulpit for a while. His first Sunday back, old Leatherlungs got after it. I try. What's the so what? Sometimes we have this idea that our repentance ended when we got saved. Well, I repented of my sins and I got saved. Great. That doesn't mean you stop repenting. Perhaps now you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, but God is speaking to your heart and he's revealing some sin that's taken root in your life and you're in need of repentance. So what do you do? Just like we said before, you see your sin as an offense to your thrice holy God. David, a saved man, when Nathan confronts him about Bathsheba and the sin that he committed with her and murdering Uriah and so forth, what does he say in Psalm 51.4? Yeah, yeah, he committed a sin against Bathsheba and against, and against Uriah and against Ahithophel and a whole bunch of other people, but what does he say? Against thee. The only have I sinned, speaking to God, and done this evil in thy sight. He understood that ultimately the greatest problem with this, yeah, Bathsheba, that's bad. Uriah, that's bad. But ultimately, I've sinned against God. And sometimes when I go to God and I ask for forgiveness about something that's in my life, I have to work through that, Lord, I need you to help me because I'm concerned that I'm more, I'm more worried about whether or not I'm going to get caught or whether or not this is going to affect my ability to perform as a pastor or if this is going to have a negative impact on my family. No, the ultimate concern that I always must have when I go to God for forgiveness is that, God, my sin offends you. No, it's not good for my wife. It's not good for my kids. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the school. It's not good for the community. But ultimately, my sin offends the God who loves me and sent his son to die for me. Maybe there's some sin in your life and you see it as an offense to God. And you recognize where this sin will lead. If I don't get this thing dealt with, no, I won't lose my salvation. But there's all kinds of other bad stuff that's going to come from this if I don't get this thing taken care of. Hebrews chapter 12 says much about chastening in the life of a Christian. And friend, I got news for you. If you can sin and sin and sin and you never see any chastening from God, according to Hebrews 12, you got a serious problem. You don't belong to him. How do you know you're saved, Andy? I'd love to take you to the fruit of the Spirit. 
Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, goodness, temperance, faith, and all that. I love, yeah, and that's true. That's there. But I tell you, the best way for me to know that I'm saved is when I sin. Yeah, I might sin, but I can't get away with it. God whoops me and whoops me. I've spent the last month getting whooped. But I'm thankful for it because whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I got a hard time believing somebody's repentant if I don't see any scourging in their lives. And I don't see any remorse in their lives. And I don't, I don't see any of that. You see, your sin is an offense to God. You recognize where this sin will lead. You ask for God's forgiveness, not to be saved, but that you might have that fellowship restored. Lord, I know I'm saved. I know I belong to you, but I've failed you. I've come up short. I've offended you. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you endeavor to turn from that sin and to walk in what Romans 6 calls the newness of life. I might still fail him time and again, but boy, I'm going to try to do right. I'm going to try to turn. I'm not going to make provision for the flesh. I'm going to put things in my life that keep that stuff away from me. I'm going to do what I can to turn from it and to turn to Jesus and live for him. I'm not going to embrace it and say, oh, well, God's grace covers it. No big deal. Your so what if you're saved is maybe that. But maybe you're here, you're watching online, and your issue isn't whether or not you're saved. Your issue is that you're lost. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead and trespasses and sins. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not dying. You're dead. You're dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, there's that word but, those in Bible class and on Wednesday nights, that transitional word. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, hath made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Peter, speaking that there on the porch at the temple after the lame man was just raised up at the gate beautiful Peter says repent 
ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Your so what if you're here today, if you're watching and you've never trusted Christ, your so what is to understand that your sin has offended a holy God and it's leading to nothing but hell. But if you'll confess your sins, if you'll call upon Jesus to be your Savior, he'll save you and he'll empower you to turn from that old life and turn to Jesus. So whether you're saved, whether you're lost, it's the same message. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And he commands that we do it now.